The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, I talk with Kathy Gents about ground covers and how they may solve many of your garden issues. We explore how to make wise selections when seeking the perfect ground cover. Kathy is a lifelong gardener. She believes that growing plants should be stress-free and enjoyable. Her philosophy is inspiration over perspiration and is on a mission to turn black thumbs green. Kathy's newest book, Ground Cover Revolution, is a powerhouse of garden wisdom. She also co-authored The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty. Kathy Gents is the editor and publisher of the award-winning Washington Gardener magazine, based in Washington, D.C., She also hosts the popular weekly Garden D.C. podcast, which was recently named Best D.C. Podcast. This is Episode 93, The Ground Cover Revolution with Kathy Gents on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Kathy, what are the characteristics that make a plant a ground cover? Well, it's kind of in the name, which is great. (laughs) It's not confusing like annual and perennial for the beginner. It's a plant that gives good coverage over the soil. So it could be a plant that holds in, might die back in the wintertime, but the roots are still there. So almost all ground covers that we consider to be good ground covers are perennial in some way, shape, or form. They also either allow to be tread on so that you could walk them maybe lightly or around them or so thick that they choke out competition. So weeds in particular is what we want to choke out. Is there a certain height that you think of is the limiting factor for that classification? Well, traditionally ground covers, people think of as being very low to the ground, a couple inches. But I actually think there are a lot of ground covers that could be knee high or even higher. And then there's that category of ground cover that part of the year it's tall, say Rudbeckia has a nice green basil growth. Basil, not as in the herb, but basil, S-A-L, at the end. So it has good ground coverage, but then flowering component that then dies back at the end of the season. How do we benefit from planting ground covers? One big asset of ground covers is it's not as maintenance heavy as a turf grass lawn. If you're looking to cut back on some of your maintenance in some areas, you could start replacing certain sections where turf grass is not successful, say in a shady under tree area or a really wet section of your landscape or a really dry section of your landscape where turf grass is struggling. A ground cover plant could be matched to that situation. Then other ways that they are beneficial is that they are gorgeous usually. The ones I recommend in the book are usually good-looking ones. 
They create texture, variety. They fill in under a shrub or tree, sometimes where you don't want to be weeding or accessing a lot so that you have a nice solid ground cover under that. Then you're not having to constantly weed, say, through rhododendron or somewhere else that you might be damaging or getting in competition with. And there's the asset of holding in the soil. If you have a slope and things are just running down, like it's just a muddy slope that it could be holding it in with the roots that way and really give you some nice coverage. Whereas maybe turf grass would never get established because you literally have to take landscape pins, right, to stick that unrolled turf and make it stay there. Or it's just condition that's not conducive to growing other plants where a ground cover would be the perfect solution. Is there such thing as the perfect ground cover? And the reason I ask is because I've always found it challenging because it always seems like they don't know where to stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the definitions of a ground cover is that it spreads. So by definition, it's going to give you coverage and spread can also be the maintenance part of the ground cover is that you want to establish some type of line. You could do so by putting in some type of landscape barrier. You could do it by putting it up against a hardscaping or a pathway. And so one side of your pathway might be a moss ground cover. And then the other side, maybe it's in more sun and that could be another ground cover. Or you can mix your ground covers. There's no book out there not mine at least, that says it has to be one solid uniform ground cover. You can knit different ones together. Would that be a tapestry lawn or ground cover? Sure. So it could be a blending of one or two. One could be a lower growing and one could be a higher growing. Or it could be, as you said, like a tapestry pattern where you're plugging in different ones side by side and creating a really gorgeous pattern. Or you can let nature do its work and let them kind of duke it out and see which one dominates. They're naturally going to go for where they are more successful. And then you can let that establish and take over. But if you're like, well, I still want that creeping rosemary, even though the creeping time is taking over, then you could do some editing in there. How do you go about choosing the correct ground cover for an area? Because I see English ivy. It'll swallow up a house, I think, in just a couple of years. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for when you want to make those choices? Yeah, it's always a balance of looking for right plant, right place, of course. So in my book, I have charts and descriptions that will tell you what situation this particular ground cover does best in. But you also want to know, is it a really invasive fast spreader or is it a slow spreader, which we have that ranking in the book as well how much maintenance it's going to be. And of course, your mileage may vary. As I always say, if you're in the southeastern U.S., it might spread faster than it will in the northeastern U.S. or vice versa. You have to know your local climate and even your local microclimates in your yard because I have ground covers that I'm testing in three different sections of my landscape. They'll stay put in dry shade and slowly expand. But if I put those same ground covers in a sunny, beautiful soil perennial bed, that's all I would have is that ground cover. The perennials would just be completely taken over. You've referred to your book a couple of times, but first, congratulations on completing your soon-to-be-released third book, Ground Cover Revolution. What made you decide to write a book on ground covers? I have had a ground cover passion since I purchased my home over 20 years ago and decided I didn't want to have to ever mow the lawn on the front slope again because it was literally 
traffic and slope. And I didn't want to contend with either of them. I started experimenting. I would open up garden catalogs. And if it ever said fast spreading, thug-like behavior, aggressive, or had little warnings, or I would go to a plant swap and somebody would say, I have tons of extra of this plant. I would say, sold. That's the plant for me. (laughs) I'd pop that in wherever I could just to get good coverage. And then I thought I would come back and you know replace those eventually with perennial beds. And it turned out that in most cases, I've left the ground covers because it's a lot lower maintenance. And, you know, life happens. You, You never get to those big perennial bed plans. It seems like every time you see ground covers in a photo, it's a perfect shot. What's the process for selecting and planting ground covers? It really depends on the ground cover you choose. Some of them are better started from seed and with a blank slate. So you might do the lasagna method where you suffocate the weeds or turf underneath with layers of newspaper and mulch and then come back and seed in or where you would start off with plugs at a certain distance from each other, maybe four inches off center, maybe six inches, depending on how fast spreading they are. It is going to be a couple years of, as the ground cover gets established, weeding out any competition. Depending on the fast spreading and how it goes, it could be two years, it could be five years. Depends on the ground cover. There's a native ground cover to our region that I don't include in the book because it is just such a slow spreader. And that's our native Pachysandra Allegheny Spurge, which is beautiful once you get a nice patch filled in. It is so slow. Even when you're starting off with several plugs, it could be up to 10 years before a coverage of an area. What if it's on a slope and have an erosion? For a slope in particular, you could lay down a landscape cloth around the plugs or areas and just cut out those and then pull that back after a year or so. Or you could do, if it's more level, of course, mulching for the first couple of years. I like to use um, shredded leaves rather than hardwood or anything. That adds to the soil. It's nice and light. But if it's on a slope, it's not going to stick like glue. For slopes, I generally pick ground covers that have a good size root system that will establish pretty quickly. So you might go for a larger size specimen. Rather than a plug, maybe a four inch or a quart sized of that ground cover rather than go from a seed or a plug. In your book, you talk about replacing lawn with ground covers. I hear that, but then I think about the Bermuda grass that we have in our area, and it's just about impossible, even with herbicide, to get rid of Bermuda grass. Do you have a special technique that you like to use for that? Yeah, and I had referred to earlier the lasagna, the smothering method. That's kind of your best bet for getting rid of something that's really wiry and close to the ground. You could rent a sod busting type of machine, dig that. You can also dig by hand and shovel and just go a couple inches deep, depending on how established the root system is for that Bermuda grass. That is backbreaking work, admittedly. I would go for the lasagna method, the layer method. Try that out for a season. I'm not a big fan of using any chemicals in your landscape, even if it's not going to be something that you're eating. Still just for your own protection, just start with that. If it's a big swath of it and you find it's easy to dig, maybe after spring rains, then maybe try a section that way as well. You've selected 40, 43 ground covers in your book. How did you go about selecting those particular ones? Yeah, it was tough, Craig, really tough, (laughs) because we all have our favorites and our babies. The book is aimed internationally. I tried to pick ground covers that were widely available and ones that many different regions could grow. 
maybe some of the ones that you think of as a favorite for your area might not be included, but probably similar ones are in there. I tried to source what was available to people, just the regular homeowner who wouldn't be able to order through a specialty nursery or anything like that. And also ones that had good attributes and benefits, a broad range of those. Either they were deer proof or they had some edible benefits for wildlife, for birds or pollen for butterflies. Wanted a ground cover that did either double or triple or even quadruple duty, not just be a beautiful ground cover, but have other benefits in there. Yeah, I like how you also added in the interesting tidbits. Doing the research on the interesting tidbits, which is just like a little bit of trivia on some of the plants that you might not know. I learned a few things I didn't know. So some of them might be a folk medicine use of the plants that I never heard of. Or it could be that a creature used that ground cover, say like turtles, use that ground cover. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know this supported turtles. I didn't think about that as another benefit of them. I've always thought of ground covers as leaning toward low maintenance. Is that always true? It's lower maintenance than turf grass in that you're not going to have to be mowing once a week, twice a week, and adding inputs that you do for turf grass lawns. Maybe you're mowing it back or cutting it back once a year, and then maybe you're weeding once a season or once a month. Lower maintenance than turf grass, but there's no such thing as we know, right, Craig, as no maintenance. I always say even concrete needs maintenance. I remember watching my new neighbors across the street who own a landscape company, by the way, They replaced their entire side lawn with nice, beautiful pattern paver blocks. Then one of the household members would go out every day in the early morning with a leaf blower and blow them clean. It would take about half an hour. Ask me how I know. (laughs) Because laying in bed, listening to this leaf blower go, and I'm like, first of all, please use a push broom. Second of all, why does every speck of leaf or dust need to be off of those pavers? But in any case, even that has some maintenance. Do you find that people that are converting their lawns to ground covers, are they picking up resistance from HOAs or neighbors or community leaders? How is that working out? There's obviously old school traditionalists, got to be green grass and that's it. And that's what the HOA covenants that they've signed say. Sometimes if you go back and read your HOA covenants or your town council rules or something, it allows more freedom in your side yards and backyard. You might start with those areas and then shrink the size of the lawn in the front because maybe you're allowed to have a shrub border, can expand that, mulch around that have a nice mulch border and then maybe an edging of ground covers in the front of those shrubs and kind of pull them out. All of a sudden one day, not too much lawn. (laughs) So you can kind of incrementally go, even in a place with no ordinances or rules like that, going from lawn overnight to all beds does elicit some reactions. I had a friend who lived in downtown Washington, D.C., an old brownstone. He ripped out the entire lawn and put in all vegetable beds. He's a cook, a personal chef. He loved to grow his own food. He got little notes left on his porch saying how ugly his yard was now. Thought it was beautiful. It was just beautiful, productive vegetables. Everybody's going to have their opinion, right, Craig? It's like no matter what you do, you're not satisfying everybody. So I would say do what's best for you and your lifestyle and what you want to do. Photos in the book I found really interesting. Did you supply all those images? 
about a third of the book I sourced from other photographers and the other two thirds are my photos from my experiments and growing different ground covers. We try to have a close up shot and a full size shot of what it's going to look like in your landscape. Because I find so many times, right, when you're reading profiles of plants, it's just that tight close up. Right. Yeah, we want to know what it looks like in the flower or the berry (laughs) or what the leaf looks like. But we also want to see what a big swath of it will look like in a landscape. And I tried to include some inspirational ideas of how people are actually using ground covers in their home landscape. Often it'll be a townhouse front yard where two sections are ground covers and maybe in the middle it's still turf grass. It's not going to be exclusively ground cover and I want to give people different options If you have kids that like to play on grass or if you have small dogs or other pets, a bunny that you want to let out on the grass every once in a while, we're not demonizing turf grass. We're just saying these are some great alternatives to it. How do you determine how to water your ground covers? That's a good question because depending on the plant choice and what you're looking to establish, it could be that the first couple years you will need to water for establishment. Then it will be fairly drought tolerant after that. In the book, you'll see drought tolerant ratings because you want to be able to pick something that after the first couple years, once it's established, you don't have to water except for long periods of drought. That's one of the benefits of ground covers, especially drought tolerant ones, is that you're not having to constantly water them to keep them looking good or alive. There are some ground covers even that will die back a bit for a season. It's okay and they'll jump right back. And I'm thinking, of course, of moss in particular. Seasonally, moss might go dormant for a little bit and come back, but still look great after that. I was going to also say about the water requirements is that I hear this fallacy with native plant. People will say they don't need watering because they're native to this area. (laughs) And I'm like, no, every plant will need watering to get established for the first couple of years. And that's where I'll see the newbie gardener fail is because they'll read the label that says drought tolerant and they'll think from day one drought tolerant drought tolerant once the roots are established. And that's usually, uh, what do we say? First year sleep, second year creep, third year leap. After that second year into the third year, you can start watering less frequently, hold it back, see how it reacts, do a little less, do it a little less. Yeah. And it all depends too on the type of weather you're getting at the time too. You may have a wet season or a dry season. It always changing. Yeah. It's good if you can establish a ground cover before your wet season for your area. Start it off that way. Of course, it's nice to establish any plant before going into your dry season because <laughs> then you will be having to supplementally water. I do show a couple of photos of some native plants that have a drip irrigation system around them for the first couple years and then taking that up because they're in a part of the person's landscape that they can't reach and they would have to hand water them at that point. What about diseases in the ground covers? In the book, we have a little bit of rating system for disease resistant, and that's generally the 40 I picked were because they were in general disease resistant. Every area is different. And then five years from now, we'll find out that English ivy all of a sudden gets some type of blight. Nobody's going to be upset about that. (laughs) (laughs) It tends to be healthy plants fight disease better, right? So you want healthy, strong plants, well-established Good air circulation around them is usually a good thing to have. If you're pinned in by, say, brick walls or something, you might be more susceptible to fungal diseases. If it's a more wet area, it might be more susceptible to fungal diseases. But in general, most ground covers 
have become popular as ground covers because they are fairly disease resistant. A lot of times ground covers are planted under deciduous trees where they're dropping the leaves into the garden. How do you handle that with ground covers? Some ground covers I rated in the book as leaf swallowing high capability because I love those. I have huge oak trees on a tiny lot. That's a lot of what I want out of my ground cover is one that will kind of suck up the leaves. They will decompose in their root system or inside the plant. And I don't have to hand rake those or blow those out later on. I'm looking for a high leaf swallowing type. Then there are some ground covers that do not tolerate having heavy leaf coverage on them. They would be on the low end of that rating in the book. And those would be the example of moss earlier. Also a lot of sedums, if they were completely covered by massive leaves, they're just going to kind of melt and die underneath. You definitely want to pull the leaves back off of those. Pull the leaves off, then you could either compost them or chop them up and recycle those nutrients back into the tree and into the ground covers too. Yeah, definitely. I often think of vines as something that's going to go vertical. Are there good vines for ground covers? been mentioning English ivy, and that is a vine that loves to cover the ground and everything else you have in between, right? Mm -hmm. Up the tree, up your house. (laughs) So if you think of the famous kudzu vine as well, makes a great ground cover in theory, but then when it has access to everything else, will it take off as well? There are some traditional ground cover vines that we don't even think of as vines because they've always been used as ground covers. They just creep along. Like Venka is one good example of that that makes it a nice thick ground cover, although it is invasive in most areas because of that. There are some better behaving vines that are more decorative ground covers in a small area like Clematis can have really nice ground cover under a shrub of clematis and then it might grow up into the shrub as well but it's not going to take over and smother it and defoliate that shrub or tree by being on it. Is there anything that can compete with English ivy? Yeah so in my experiments with English ivy that's what I inherited on my big oak trees was tons of English ivy. Epimedium was shockingly the one ground cover I put up right against it I thought, oh, this little pretty one, it'll be on the pathway, but I'll have to keep weeding around it. In a wintertime, ran over the English ivy and actually has smothered that section. When I pull back the edges of the epimedium, there's no more English ivy going under it. Wow. A lot of other ground covers can cover English ivy, but you'll still have the bare vines kind of running through and still living. But I think the barren wart or epimedium is the one that's the most successful in that situation. How do you think it does that? Is it chemically or is it depriving it of light or what? I think it's the light and also because it is such a close-knit root system. When you dig it up, it's got really thick root system, not a deep one or a huge one like our ground cover hardy geraniums. I think it's just a really tightly thick one and because it's a thick mass so it stays together and the foliage is pretty dense but some air gets in there what do you wish people would do differently when designing building and growing a garden or landscape and we've already talked about ground cover so you can't use that <laughs> okay well i would say one of my other loves is water gardening I would say put in some kind of moving water element. It could be anything, a tabletop fountain, a small little waterfall or recirculating water feature in the soil. If you don't have a big enough space for even a three foot pond, I will say you'll never regret 
a water feature. That's one of the best ways to have soothing sound, have wildlife come to your garden and visit you. I always say my little backyard pond is just like a nine foot oval. Every creature in the neighborhood has come and drank out of that pond. (laughs) (laughs) So it is a big attractor for wildlife. If you like to just sit back and watch different creatures come and visit, that's fun as well. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine it would be, especially in the city. Yep, definitely city creatures. We'll just call them city vermin. Then you always get surprises. It's shocking that some of the things that will come to visit, like a huge crane one day. I thought you were a couple miles away by the river, but nope, you're here because I guess they're flying back and forth and they see that little glint of shiny water. That's quite a shock when you have a small pond and you got this tall bird standing in the middle of it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I can imagine it would be. Well, what garden myth would you like to smash today? In the springtime, a lot of homeowners, they just do their one trip to the big box store, buy everything that's in bloom that day, load up their cart, plant it, and then done, right? (laughs) (laughs) Dusted and done. I'm done for the season. I'm going to say, please, 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 please make a couple more trips. Maybe don't buy everything at once. (laughs) Then think about planting for at least three seasons, if not four seasons, getting some longevity over that. Not everything has to bloom at Mother's Day. We can have a little bit more than that. What is the earliest garden memory you have? When I was really little, my dad was in the Army and we were stationed in Fairbanks, Alaska. I remember going, and it wasn't, I guess, strictly gardening. We went blueberry picking, and a huge butterfly landed on my leg. And I was like, I'm the luckiest girl in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely sold on the butterfly. We went mushroom collecting and blueberry picking because in Alaska, it was kind of hard to have your own garden plot, except for a super short season. People listen to the podcast from places I perceive probably don't have a lot of gardening going on, like Alaska, how they would handle gardening. It's very intensive. In Quebec and areas like Alaska, you have things growing at the same time that in the South are separated by months. So it's always shocking to me to see like tomatoes and cabbage at the same time. You're like, what? (laughs) But yeah, you have big cabbages or big lettuce heads at the same time as your tomatoes and peppers. It's just the season is smashed together. And the other weird combination I remember seeing tulips and roses. Oh, wow. That doesn't happen. You either have tulips or you have roses, but yeah. Yeah. So definitely that gets compressed in that five months growing season. Why did you decide to pursue horticulture communicator as a profession? My training and background is journalism. I went to college for journalism and was writing about all different things for a bunch of different associations, nursing association or running and fitness or school supplies. But meanwhile, I was bit hard by the gardening bug, lifelong gardeners and farmers on both sides of my family. I knew that was a passion of mine, but I didn't even think that there is a capability of being a garden writer or garden communicator until I started looking around for a business to start on my own. I wanted to start a publication for the Washington, D.C. area, knowing that there was such a rich and diverse growing area, but not too much information for home gardeners at that time. So that's why I started Washington Gardener Magazine and then the Garden DC podcast and other pursuits branched out from that, doing a lot of speaking and that sort of thing. Didn't even know, even in college, that there was a garden communicator, except for maybe that there was newspaper garden columnist or radio shows. You knew there was a garden radio show, but you didn't think of that as even a journalistic career. Tell us a funny garden story. 
<laughs> well, I would say the funniest story I can recall happened recently, and I mentioned my water garden before, is I was sitting in my sunroom, which opens up to the water garden, and I had my back to the windows, kept hearing this little giggling, like like little giggling. And I was like, what is that sound? What is that sound? I went out there and I found two neighbor children. They just had wandered off from their house and come on over. They were petting the little feeder goldfish I have in the pond. If you've ever pet goldfish or koi, you know that they will come to the surface if you wiggle your finger in there and they'll kind of suck on your finger. You can actually pet them a tiny bit. I don't feed them. I want them to be shy. So they'll go to the bottom of the pond when a raccoon or something shows up. They're not really trained to humans. It was funny that they were coming, but I think it's those child-sized fingers look like little worms and they were like so attracted to them. (laughs) In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Martha Stewart is a big one just because she built up this big media empire starting with a catering business, then decided to start the magazine and the television and all her other outlets. The fact that she's branded it as DIY, that it's open and available to anybody. I like that type of messaging and it's a lot of positivity in there emphasizes what you can achieve versus the negative because we have a lot of negative going on in our lives these days. We don't need more to be told that is negative. Right, right. What is your most valuable garden mistake? In the vegetable garden in particular, not starting yesterday, right? (laughs) I'm thinking about asparagus. When you plant the crowns, you have to skip a couple years until you can get your first harvest. The first thing you want to do is plant asparagus. And the first thing I did in my plot was plant everything but asparagus because I didn't want to give that any space. I just was like, no, no, no. I waited a few years and now I'm like, darn it. That should have been the first thing in the ground was the asparagus. You could be eating it today. Exactly. You just have to wait a few years, practice some patience. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? I'm trying to remember the podcast I was listening to. And they were talking about something that is near and dear to my heart, which is the abundance theory that the earth, the more you give, the more you get back. But it was interesting because they were coming from a background of poverty. They didn't have the abundance mindset. They had to learn it through gardening. Like gardening taught them that because when you come from scarcity, You want to hoard, you want to keep it for yourself. You only plant a few seeds out because you're afraid that you won't have enough seeds or you don't want to share that. You know that the more seeds you plant, the more seeds you're going to get the next season from harvesting those. That's one of the things that is really interesting to me is to look at that. And I also like to do a lot of reading. Hope there's more research on this in the next few years on green blindness And I don't know if you're familiar with that theory, Craig. No, I'm not. That's the theory that we humans evolved with green blindness, which is for a reason, because we were hunter-gatherers. So we don't see plants. We see red, you know, you see blood, and we see movement, eyeballs. We see eyes and movement. That's why red and anything shiny, shiny is water, that's life. So those are what our brain and our eyes are tuned to. Everything that's green is blended into the background. We evolved that way, but even now in modern times, modern man tends to be green blind. Like if you ask somebody to point out something in a landscape, they're going to point out the chairs, the house, maybe a tree. I'll be shocked if they even mention the trees, (laughs) but there's pervasive green blindness and how we can get over that green blindness and 
call people's attention to these are hydrangeas, these are roses, not all the same plants, these change over the season. Yeah, how to combat green blindness and the why behind it. It has a lot to do as to where our money goes publicly, what we invest in, and what we see. Because if you don't see something, you're not going to put any resources towards it. That's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have a jungle. (laughs) It is like the cobbler's children with no shoes, right? It is just a mess right now (laughs) of different projects, different things, different plants waiting. I call it my pot ghetto. (laughs) Ton of plants waiting to still go in the ground. And yes, it's January. (laughs) I still have bulbs to be planted. Tell people I'm the jungle on the corner, a bunch of greenery and plants versus neighbors who have pretty much straight landscapes. It's fun. It's a lot of things that I need to take care of, but you know, the hours will come. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're going to apply this year? I was ignoring a little bit because I was working on the book during most of my springtime. I was really late on a lot of springtime things. I will be scheduling in earlier seed planting for some annuals and things. But also what got neglected, which shouldn't have, was some of those oak trees I mentioned before. I had to have uh, arborists come in this month and limb up some of the oak trees and take out a lot of the dead wood because they were starting to suffer. I think it's just because we had really hot, wet years in the Washington, D.C. area the last few years, and these are really old oak trees, so they're really starting to show their age. What are your future plans for your garden? I'm going to rip out everything. No. (laughs) (laughs) Start over. Start over again. More fun. (laughs) One of the things I want to do, and I have a very unusual driveway It was built to fit three trucks side by side, so it kind of comes into a curve. I want to take that curve out of the driveway and make a circular seating area. So I want to just take that off the driveway and and do something with hardscaping-wise and make that a nice circular area that feels enclosed and insular, not like somebody who can just drive a truck right up to the house. What plan are you in love with this week? Wow. In the middle of winter, that's a tough one. (laughs) So, um, <laughs> their catalogs. Yeah, the catalogs are always great. So, I would say I have a red line amaryllis that's blooming beautifully right now and sending up two or three more stalks. I always have African violets in bloom year round. And that's a plant that my grandmother on my dad's side loved. And she had several different varieties of African violets always in bloom. So that's something I can always rely on for cheer and color. It's beginning of garden speaking season, I call it. I know you're a speaker. Could you tell us where you're going to be over the next few months and where you're speaking, where maybe people could come hear you and meet you? Sure. So at the end of January and into early February is I Landscape, like the letter I. And that's in Schaumburg, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. I'll be speaking at that. And that's mainly open to landscape professionals to get their CEUs or their education units. And then a couple of weeks after that, I will be at the Northwest Flower and Garden Festival. That's in Seattle, Washington, and that's February 15th through 18th. I'll be speaking twice during that week and also doing what's called a container war where I'm put up against another garden speaker and we're going to create containers and it's called container wars. I'm still not 100% sure how that works. My opponent is a veteran who's done that several times at this show, and I've never done it. So I'm going to have to do a lot of homework and watch some YouTube videos of these container wars to see what I'm up against. (laughs) 
wow, yeah, that sounds interesting. Do you get to know the plants before you get there or is that a surprise? I think we're going to get a list of what's available from the local nursery. I think we'll have some choices there. Oh, okay. Is there anything else I should have asked? Do you have an event that I created called Seed Swap Day at the end of January? And that's always the last Saturday of January, which this year is the 28th. And I hold two local seed exchanges in the D.C. area. We have a website called Seed Swap Day where we list other seed exchanges that happen all over the country and the world. If anybody is hosting a seed swapping event and wants listing there, just comment on that website or contact me. I'm a big proponent of wintertime is the best time to be going through those seed catalogs, sorting through what inventory you have, and figuring out what you want to grow this year. Now, I know you have a very popular podcast. Could you tell us about that? Sure. It's called Garden DC, like the city DC, all one word. It's aimed at the mostly the mid-Atlantic area, so zone 6, 7, a little bit of 8, a little bit of 5. We have listeners from all over the world because we interview experts like Dr. Alan Armitage and others on a specific topic each episode. So that episode could be all about peonies or it could be all about mulching that a lot of gardeners can relate to even if they're not in our growing zone for the mid-Atlantic U.S. And it's a fun show because we do about 45 minutes of interview similar to what you do, Craig. And then I do a couple short segments. One is a plant profile of something seasonal in the garden at that time. Other short segment is what is going on in the garden. So I literally look out my window. This is in bloom. That's not doing well. This is doing great. And here's some local gardening events for our, our D.C. mid-Atlantic area. Just added on a new segment called The Last Word. And I'd love to have you give a last word once, Craig. So okay. I've invited anybody who in the horticultural world who would like to record a couple minutes of a last word on any topic. So it could be the last word on weeds. It could be the last word on why I love dandelions, <laughs> anything they want to offer a last word on. I figure that will be a fun way to end the episodes. It's kind of our third year. We're the same length as the COVID pandemic because we started the week of the COVID shutdown. <laughs> so I can say March 2020, we'll be starting our new season. Oh, good. That's a weekly podcast too. I try to post it early afternoon every Saturday. I've listened to your episodes and I found them very informative and enjoyed them very much. In fact, it's on my regular list of podcast listens now. Yay. Good to hear. Yeah. It's like once you listen to one garden podcast, then you're like, oh, I got to get some more. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely you start collecting and, you know, there's a lot of us who go on each other's podcasts. Yeah. So then there's a good exchange of wisdom from each other's podcasts as well. Let's circle back to some closing thoughts on ground covers ground covers. It's something that you can do a little bit at a time. One way to start off with ground covers is just to dig a small section, put a couple plants in a grouping of three or five and let them expand and then add a little more. If it's a budget or a resource or a time constraint, you definitely can start small with ground covers. It's not like you need to rip out an entire hillside or your entire front lawn in a weekend. You could do that (laughs) for sure. But I would say a little bit of the time gets it done. Right, right. And you can also divide things too. Yeah. One of my tricks that I put in the book as well is that sometimes you can get two or three plants by kind of nosing around in those pots at the nursery or garden center. Mm -hmm. And you'll say, oh, this four inch pot has two plants versus the one next to it has just one and how you can divide. 
Some ground covers are very easy to start from divisions. Those are in particular the ones that you might want to look for doing that way. Kathy, tell us how people may connect with you. Sure, they can find me on most social media at WDC Gardener. So all one word, no spaces or dashes, WDC Gardener on Pinterest, Instagram, TikTok even these days, crazy. (laughs) And they can also find my podcast, Garden DC, wherever you listen to podcasts. They can visit my website, washingtongardener.blogspot.com. This has been episode 93, The Ground Cover Revolution with Kathy Jentz on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Kathy. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.